0: Well, good morning. How are you all doing? Good. Uh, I want you to think for a moment. Uh, think back and uh, come up with a time where you, in your life where you felt the wealthiest. Take a moment and think about it. When was the time in your life where you felt the wealthiest? For me, I think of two, two different times. The first time was when I was in probably 11th or 12th grade. Um, I worked at Applebee's and I was a server there. And uh, I loved working there, it was a great place. And I would come home every single night with just a pocket full of cash. I loved getting tips. And so I'd take all my tips and I would stack them on my dresser. And I, I just always felt wealthy, right? I lived with my parents, I had no bills, Um, I could do whatever I wanted. I could buy any amount of video games, literally, whatever I wanted. I felt very, very wealthy. And so, maybe before we even get into anything, the, the, the secret to being rich is to get a minimum wage job and move in with your parents. Maybe that's the secret. The other time, where I felt uh, wealthy was when I was about seven or eight years old. This was really when I felt really, really, this is the, the most time. And so uh, I was seven or eight. I remember getting my first $100 bill. I got my first $100 bill, I'm seven or eight. Before then, you know, maybe I had, had you know, some change or a dollar or $5, maybe $10 or something like that. I'm not really sure. But I remember getting my first $100 bill. The world was my oyster, right? I could buy any amount of candy that I wanted. I could buy that G.I. Joe that I had been dreaming, dreaming about forever. I was the wealthiest person in that time. Now, since then, a lot has changed. I don't live with my parents anymore. I, I have my own family, and I own a house and a car, and I pay bills now, and a lot has changed. And so for you today, whether $100 sounds like a lot of money to you, or that would be an amazing thing, or in all honesty, maybe $100. It doesn't sound like much money anymore. I want to talk to you all today about how to be rich. So here's the thing. I just got to be honest. I love cash, right? I love, I love money. I, love, I enjoy buying things. And I enjoy selling things. And I, I Craigslist all the time. I think about things nonstop until I somehow can figure out how to get this. So maybe you're a little bit like me, maybe you're not like me at all, but here's what I know. Whatever spectrum of this you fall on, whether you feel rich today or not, that the Bible has a lot to tell us about riches and wealth. And specifically Solomon, as we continue our series, In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has a few little morsels to give us as well on this idea of riches and wealth. So, we're going to pick this up in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. This is what Solomon writes. He says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth? except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Now, naturally, when I read this, the first thing that pops out to me is, I don't think this is for me, because I'm not rich, and I'm not wealthy. That's the first thing that comes to my mind, and probably you're similar to me. You're thinking, well, I'm not rich. Like, how is this for me? And You know, we all know people who are rich. We don't think we're rich, but we all know someone else who is rich. And usually that person is someone who has a little bit more money than you do. You know what, I've been places in the world, been places in America, where if you're the person there and you were able to afford a plane ticket to a hotel room, you were the rich person. I've been places like that where I felt wealthy that I was able to get the, the plane ticket and the hotel room, I felt wealthy. And then you come back to uh, uh, your home and that gets kind of taken away and you start comparing yourself again and no longer do you feel rich. So here's the thing, I think we could all agree that we are all wealthier or more rich than some people in the world, right? We could all agree that we're wealthier or we're more rich than some people in the world. But here's the thing, really, uh, most of us are uh, more rich than most people in the world. Here's a statistic for you. Uh, if, if your household makes $48,000 a year, you are in the world's top 1% of wage earners. If your household makes $48,000 a year, you are in the world's top 1% of wage earners. By this standard, you would be considered rich. But most of you, after hearing that, And seeing your response, it doesn't get you excited. No one's jumping up and down saying, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich, right? For most of you, you don't think that means rich. And here's the thing, Solomon points out a very uh, common problem in our day and age today. This notion, this idea that I have to get more. I'll never be rich until I get more than I have today. This notion, this idea that wealth or the pursuit, the love of money will bring happiness. Wealth will bring meaning. Money will bring uh, uh, mean no more worry in life. <coughs> the society we live in today that pursues wealth at all cost, maybe $48,000 wouldn't be rich, but a little bit more would be. So we pursue and pursue money, more money, more things, more possessions. Many of us live by this model of get rich or die trying. You know what I'm talking about, you've heard that before, get rich or die trying. I'm sure some of you may not want to admit that, right? Many, many people's pursuit uh, is money and riches, but you wouldn't want to uh, admit that, you know what, all I'm trying to do is get rich. But for most of us, accumulating more, getting more, becoming rich, it really is our life pursuit. We all think about money. We dream about money. We think about how I can get more money. And this can even be an admiral pursuit. You know, securing, securing the future for yourself, your family, your kids, your grandkids, and so on, it can seem really admirable. So what do we do? We work, we plug away, we think of ways of how we can make more money, we think of ways we can, we can do more things or leverage gifts and talents for my work so I can do this and do that. We think of ways, how can I make more money? Could I sell something? Could my wife make me money? Could my kids make me money? Like, how can I make more money? We spend long nights at the office thinking about this. And most of us are probably in that same boat. We think about, and our life is really, if I could be rich one day, that's what I want. We're all trying to be rich. How many of you have ever thought about what you'd do if you won the lotto? If you, uh, how amazing would it be if I just won the lotto? That we're all thinking about and wanting to be rich. And then we think about the money that we lost, right? Oh, I could have got a better deal on those soccer cleats. Like, why did I spend the extra five dollars? We think about the, the stock market, or can I retire, or whatever it is. Maybe I'll listen to send my kids to college. Money can really create a lot of worry, stress when we dwell on it, and when we pursue it. And this is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, when you pursue the love of money, that is what is meaningless. When we think about all the unknowns of the future, if you were able to just think for a moment, uh, how much money would you need uh, right now to secure your future against all possibilities of things happening? How much money would you need to secure the future in which you want against all possibilities of things happening? I actually know the answer to that more than you have today. This get-rich-or-die-trying way of life usually ends up being a substitute for God. Wealth becomes and riches can become a substitute for God. We pursue money instead of pursuing God. The fear of the future can drive you to try and secure your own future instead of allowing God to provide and secure it for you. It becomes more difficult to... Do the things that are close to God's heart too. Give generously the things that God cares about because you're trying to secure your own future against uh, different possibilities of things happening in the future. How many of you guys were in town for the windstorm last winter? That was crazy, right? Who, who got to miss the windstorm? You, were, you booked that flight to Cabo randomly and you got lucky. I was here. It was crazy, right? And how many of you, after the windstorm, thought about and dwelt on all the things that you didn't have that would have helped you throughout the windstorm? You thought about all the things that would keep you safe for the next windstorm? You thought about the things that you need, the different stashes that you have to have? Maybe, like, did you, I need to get a generator? I need to get this. I need to get some water purification stuff. Who did that? Who started watching the weird prepper YouTube videos and then figuring out how to make bug out bags and stuff like that? You're laughing because you did it. I know I was there. I'll admit it, all right? I watched the weird YouTube prepper videos. I figured out how to be a prepper. In case Windstorm 2.0 happened, and there was civil unrest in Spokane, and people looting out Walmart to get their generators, I knew how to stay safe, and I knew what I needed to do. So what did I do? I went, I got an ax, I got another knife, and I got another gun. That's gonna keep me safe from the wind, all right? Right there. That's what I went and did. But the fear of the future, right? It can drive us to try and secure our own future. What, what is it gonna help me? What, how can I secure my own future? Our church, we had a Y2K generator installed years before we ever bought this place. This wonderful generator, right? It's supposed to secure the future of the church in case something terrible will happen. Y2K, right? Robots take over the US. Microwaves come alive somehow and take everything over. And the, and the church had a Y2K generator. And in the end, when we actually needed it, we serviced it, we thought it was in working order, windstorm happens, we put our hope and our trust in a generator, and did the generator work? No, it didn't. Why would I put my hope in an axe? Why would, why would we put our hope in a generator saying we're going to secure our own future against different possibilities that could happen? And so what happens is this fear of the future many times can drive us and actually cause us to want to secure our own life or secure our own life instead of allowing God to do it. And it ends up uh, changing and putting our hope in money and putting our hope in possessions and putting our hope in things and accumulating more than putting our hope in God. Why would I hope in an ax? I should put my hope in the transformative power of Jesus and work of the body right here that no matter what would happen we would still come together and experience his goodness even if there was no power. And you know what? We did. People came together to worship God. Mark 8:36. Jesus says this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? When hope shifts from God to money, and we put our hope and our trust in money, we put our hope and trust in possessions, in things, and accumulating more, having nicer stuff, that's where Solomon says that pursuit is meaningless. What good is an ax if I ended up missing out on what God really wanted for me? Trusting him and putting my, my hope in him. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And if we were really honest, many of us actually serve money. Here's the thing having money is not wrong. Being wealthy is not bad at all. Money can do a lot of good. But what Solomon here is saying those who serve money, those who think about accumulating more, dreaming of nicer things, wanting a better life, they, they find their happiness in, in getting more and amassing more. That's where Solomon says that pursuit is me- meaningless. And so what happens when we do this? When we, when we uh, accumulate more, when we make more money, when we have nicer things, feels good, right? It feels good to get a nicer car or whatever it is. It feels good. We like the feeling of being rich. It feels good. But here's the thing. Rich people often confuse being rich with Feeling rich. If I don't feel rich, I'm actually not rich because wealth actually has side effects. Wealth has side effects. I had a knee surgery a year and a half ago, and uh, I got sent home with a big goodie bag full of drugs. It was great, right? <laughs> and these drugs, they had side effects. Made me sleepy, made me dizzy, uh, made my heart race, uh, had some anxiety from it. I had side effects. And just like that, wealth also brings its own side effects as well. And Solomon points this out through Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6. And feel free to read both of those chapters and you'll see what he's talking about. And Paul also writes about this. He writes a, a, a letter to Timothy. And it's a leader that he's training. And he talks about these side effects that riches and wealth can create. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, he says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So, what are these traps or these side effects of riches? One thing is people who are wealthy, rich, they want more and more. Does this sound familiar? Have you ever thought this way? You never have enough. You would think that as people get wealthier or richer and start working more and getting more, that you would think that after they got the stuff that they wanted, they would feel settled. After they got the car they wanted, the house they wanted, you know, they got this or that, you'd think that wealthy people, they'd finally settle down, but no, it's this continuing never enough. I mean, think of all the athletes or movie stars or our business owners of people who made millions of dollars a year, and then you hear these sad stories of them going bankrupt. How does that happen? How does someone make millions of dollars a year yet still end up in bankruptcy? This side effect, which is never enough. You never have enough. Gotta continue to get more, get more, have this. John D. Rockefeller was once asked this question. How much money does it take to satisfy a man? Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more than he has. Increased wealth comes with increased expense, responsibility, And the ability to buy more and make more and buy more and make more. And so one of the side effects is never having enough. Another side effect is discontentment. Wealthy people always get discontent with what they have. People who pursue uh, the love of money. It always seems old. It seems to lose its shine, it seems to lose its luster. The things that you once thought were so great, now all of a sudden you feel so discontent. Remember Scott's message from last week where he talked about the uh, law of diminishing returns with his creepy photo of his daughter? Remember that one where he was right next to it? That was kind of weird, right? Remember that photo? The law of diminishing returns, when things don't look the same anymore, they don't feel the same anymore. And uh, so we want to upgrade. We've heard this term, you should upgrade today. You have an early upgrade available to you right now. How many times do we fall into this discontentment of what once seemed so great, now doesn't seem great, and so we must upgrade what we have? This always uh, strikes me kind of funny when a person will take a perfectly good, reliable vehicle, and they'll take it to a dealership, They'll trade it in for another perfectly good, reliable vehicle, drive home, and pay money to do it. They'll pay money to take a good vehicle, trade it in for another good vehicle, and drive home. Often, this pursuit of money creates discontentment in what we have. And we see this with Solomon. As you read through uh, his life, and you, you see that Solomon's lifestyle, his projects, his marriages, his servants, I mean, all this, his fortunes, all this, he never seemed content with what he had. Discontentment can drive people more into debt. Discontentment can, can drive people to this whole keeping up with the Joneses mentality. I got to have what they have or something better. Discontentment can drive people into many foolish ways. I mean, have you ever woken up and you, you looked around your house and you thought like, I think I need a new house. Or, or you looked around and go, I think my living room all of a sudden is smaller. You ever done that? Where like at once you moved into your house and you thought it was amazing and then one day you woke up and your living room was small for some reason? It's called discontentment. Discontentment will drive people to put their hope and money and possessions instead of God. The last side effect, or trap, which uh, Paul says, is money creates a lot of times can create worry and sleeplessness. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 5.12, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Now notice one thing here, that Solomon is saying the person who works hard Uh, whether they eat little or much. This could be a wealthy person. This could be uh, someone who's not wealthy. The people who sleep well are people who trust God. So wealthy people can sleep great because they trust God. They know where their money came from, that God had blessed them with it. But the people who pursue money, pursue the love of money, oftentimes find themselves in sleepless nights often find themselves worrying. In their mind, their money's already gone somehow. It got spent on something, or it's gonna be taken from them. Always thinking about the next big deal, how I can make more money, how how I'm supposed to pay that off or make this payment. Why is the second leading cause of divorce in the U.S. caused by money? When we pursue money, it begins to permeate our minds and our hearts. And greed starts to control how we think. And, and maybe this happens for you, it, ha- it, it happens to me every now and then. Um, where like money can play like inception with you. Did you know that? Where like you start dreaming about it and you don't even know why. So when I used to work at Applebee's, I loved getting tips and taking my cash home. And, but I would come home from working at Applebee's, take my cash and put it on my dresser, I'd fall asleep and then I'd dream about working at Applebee's. And I'd dream about taking my tips counting them and putting it on my dresser. You're probably thinking like, why didn't you use your bank account? Well, I don't know, kind of like feeling like a mob boss or something like that. <laughs> my parents would come into my room all the time and they'd be like, can we borrow 50 bucks? And would be, like, <laughs> be like, yeah, I have it back by Friday. <laughs> but it can, it can permeate your mind and your soul and like you can even sleep thinking about how you're gonna make more money. I talked to Scott about this. Come like church budget season, he literally sees Excel spreadsheets as he sleeps and sees real-time money. He told me this, that money, it it can really affect our mind and what we do and how we sleep. And many times, it can be hard. It can create worry. It can create, how am I going to pay that debt off? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Solomon says that the pursuit of the love of money will create sleeplessness. Hope and money can create worry. Yet Jesus, he tells us something that's just so opposite of our society's view of money. Jesus comes onto the scene and he sees people pursuing, just like we do today, the love of money and possessions and accumulating more. And he sees this and he sees people running after that. He sees the the side effects that it's causing in their life. He sees the worry and the stress and the discontentment. And he sees the always trying to amass more. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter six, he says this, he says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of uh, of his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here, Jesus is not only showing us a simple lesson on wealth, but he's also asking a very important question. And this question is, What are you seeking after? Just like Solomon put, those who love money and seek after it, that is meaningless. And Jesus asks the same question, what do you seek after? The pagans are the ones who run after how I'm going to look, what I'm going to buy, all this stuff. And he says, what are you seeking after? Are you seeking after those things? Or are you seeking after me first? He knows what we need and will give them. So Jesus He wants us to understand something. And people a lot of times can think that, you know what, God just wants something from me. The church just wants something from me. They want to take something from me. They want my money. But here's what Jesus is trying to convey is that he doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Jesus wants something for your life, for you to experience He he wants you to experience this life that's different than how most people live. God wants us to seek after him. He wants us to seek after his heart first before we would ever think about money. He wants us to allow his goodness and his mercy and his grace to permeate our minds and hearts instead of the love and the pursuit of more things and money. And to seek after the things that are important to him. Did you know that God actually wants us to be rich? He wants us to be rich. He says, if you seek after me, then all the things will be added to you. All the things will be added to you. And Paul puts it this way when he's writing to Timothy still, and he's talking to Timothy about the riches and wealth, and and this is what he says uh, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable, Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. We are to be rich. And many of us are rich compared to a lot of people in the world. Compared to most people, we are rich. So how do you be rich? Jesus says, seek first me and then I will give you these things. And Paul says, we are to be rich. So how do we be rich? Many of us are rich compared to most, but most of us aren't good at being rich. So how do we be rich? I wanna give you four things that can help us be good at being rich. First thing is margin. Margin is key to being good at being rich. So when I'm seven or eight and I have a $100 bill, there's a lot of margin there. Like I, the world is open to me. The, the, uh, I have an excess of cash and the, in the uh, will not to spend it. I can spend it on whatever I want and I'll think about it and stew about it as a little kid would. And that is what margin is. The margin is just the excess of cash against your own expenses and the uh, ability or the self-control not to spend it. Now, in order to create margin in your life, you may have to change some things. You may have to decrease spending. You may have to downsize. You may have to not upgrade. You may have to get rid of some of those payments. Or for you, you may have to really focus on shedding some of that debt, getting rid of it. Maybe that means taking a financial peace course or meeting with a financial advisor who can show you how you can do that margin in our life is very important. Having margin will not only allow us not to have those sleepless nights where we're focusing on our needs and our money, but margin will allow us to open our eyes to see what is important to God. What is God trying to show me? What is close to God's heart that I can affect? Having margin will not only allow us to understand that, but like Paul says, to be rich in good works and to give generously to the things that are important to God. So the second thing is to be rich in good works and be generous. Being good at being rich means that we are generous with what we have and what we do. Money can do a lot of amazing things in life. What is close to God's heart? What does God really care about? Does God care about the hurting, the needy, like Paul pointed out? Those who are in need. Does God care about uh, uh, children without mothers and fathers? Does God care about the, the mission and the vision of his church here in Spokane, at, at North Church, or around the world? What, what, is it, what is important to God that we can give generously too. What passion has God placed inside your heart, inside your life? What if instead of accumulating more and making that upgrade, what if you prayed and said, God, here's what I have, here's what I want to do, what do you want to do? Is it bad to upgrade to a new car? No, it's not. But, what if you, instead of doing it, you just prayed and said, God, what do you want for me? Instead of accumulating more, God, what's important to you? I want to move aside what's important to me. What's important to you? Next would be contentment. Solomon says uh, this in Ecclesiastes. He says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. This is great. Because what this shows is that if you have nice things, it's okay to enjoy them. If God's blessed you with wealth and riches, it's okay to enjoy what God's given you. Being wealthy is not bad. Being rich is not bad. You should enjoy what God has given you. But discontentment is dreaming about all the things that you don't have. And so what Solomon is saying here is... Being content means just enjoying what you have instead of dreaming about all the things you don't have. And Paul writes about this too to Timothy. You know, he tells us that we should enjoy what we have. We should enjoy those things. He also writes this in Philippians 4 where Paul found out the secret of being content. He says, you know, for I've learned how to be content in whatever circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The secret of being content is our fourth thing, which is to hope in God. We are to trust in God, not in money. We are to pursue Him and not the things that we really desire. And ultimately, He will give us the things that we desire when we seek him. Remember, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He wants you to experience a way of life that's about trusting him, hoping in him, instead of our own possessions and our own secured future that we try and create ourselves. We find hope in God. And I just look at this awesome group of people, and I just think, what if all of us together, we started Hoping in Jesus, hoping in God, trusting him. What are the amazing things that we could accomplish in our city, in our church, around the world if we were to ask God, what is important to you? We wanna seek you first. We wanna give generously with our time and with our finances. God, I wanna be content with what I have and not dream about the things I don't have. What could we do in our city? What could we do in our church or in our world if we were just to be rich well? And God wants that for us. God wants us to be rich and be good at being rich. And I believe that that God has something very special in store for your life. He wants something for you in a way that you can live. And that's how you live, being rich well. Let's pray. God, we just uh, thank you, Lord. Uh, thank you, God, that you are good. Lord, and I just know that each person in this room, everyone is in a different boat, everyone's in a different category, everyone's in a different stage of life, everyone has different needs and circumstances. Lord, and I just pray that, that right now, as people are thinking about uh, uh, how, applying this to their life, God, that you would point out very specifically where we need to look to you. God, where we need to find the things that are important to you, what we might need to do, that we might be rich, be rich well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we thank you so much for finding North Church Sermons Online and we hope that the message today brought value and enrichment to your life. If you'd like to participate in the giving of this ministry, there's a couple of easy ways for you to do that. You can text the word NORTH to 77977 and receive a text back and get your online giving set up in under 60 seconds. Or else you can visit us online at northchurch.net and click on Give Online and participating in the things that God's doing right here at North Church. We thank you so much for joining us. God bless.